Welcome to Rapidly Rotating Records, an hour of toe-tapping music from Rapidly Rotating 78 RPM records of the 1920s and 30s with yours truly, Glenn Robison. We've got dance bands, hot bands, sweet bands, show tunes, novelty tunes, blues, jazz, and more on everything from Aeolian to Xenophone and by everyone from Aronson to Zerky. This is a very special show which won't be strictly following our regular five-topic, five-segment format. But I hope you enjoy listening to it even half as much as I did researching and putting it together. In past shows here and there, you've heard me mention radio stations with vanity call letters, which reflect the company that owned the station, or an advertising slogan, or some other specific meaning. Well, tonight's show is all about radio station call letters. You're probably aware that call signs or call letters are assigned to radio and television stations by the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC. All call signs, starting with K, N, and W, are reserved by international agreement for exclusive use in the U.S., with K call signs generally assigned to stations west of the Mississippi and W to those east of Old Man River. There are other schemes for amateur radio, military, and other stations, but we'll be talking strictly about commercial AM stations. AM, FM, TV, and shortwave stations can request their own call letters, as long as they're unique, and one of the more unusual examples I found was WEPS in Gloucester, Mass. WEPS went on the air November 26, 1926, and was owned by Ralph Matheson. The station's publicity director was his father, Captain John J. Matheson, and the EPS in WEPS stood for Ethel Pearl Stevenson, the maiden name of the captain's wife. The Edgewater Beach Hotel on Lake Michigan in the far north Chicago neighborhood of Edgewater comprised several buildings and recreation grounds. It opened June 3, 1916 with 400 rooms and a 1,200-foot private beach. In 1919, the Chicago Radio Laboratory was formed by H.G. Matthews. Matthews and Carl Hassel built a 250-square-foot literal radio shack on the grounds of the Edgewater Beach Hotel. In 1922, Chicago Radio Lab was granted a license and was broadcasting a whopping 1,181 feet through the hotel's in-house station, WEBH, which stood for, that's right, Edgewater Beach Hotel. Two quick notes, the Chicago Radio Lab Company eventually became the Zenith Radio Corporation, but the call sign WEBH was deleted in 1928 when the station merged with KYW. The Edgewater Beach Hotel was the venue for many famous guests and bands, and here are a couple of them.
goodbye for a while. Though I'll try hard to smile, how will I live through this winter interlude till it's summer once again? When the snow and the rain fall upon lovers' lane, how will I live through this winter interlude till it's summer once again? Here in the shadows I'll be forsaken Without your kisses divine Out of the shadows let me awaken And find your lips close to mine Here's my hand, here's my heart Tell me, dear, while we part How will I live through this winter interlude Till it's summer once again
If you've never had to count a million sheep, why, you've never been blue, never been blue. If you've never had to cry yourself to sleep, then you've never been blue. No, you've never been blue. I know I could go on laughing at trouble, plain trouble. But when it concerns the heart, that's when the pain, the pain grows double. Never worry about a little hurt or two. There's nothing at all bothering you if you've never had a pal who stole your cow. Then you've never know you've never been blue. I mean, you've never, never, never been blue. Ted Fiorito and his Edgewater Beach Hotel Orchestra backing Dusty Rhodes, sounding a little like Ted Lewis, on Then You've Never Been Blue. Ted Fiorito wrote the music and Sam M. Lewis and Joe Young the words. That's from Columbia 1967-D, made in Chicago on August 24, 1929. That was preceded by Bob Hannon with Harry Sosnick and his Edgewater Beach Hotel Orchestra and Winter Interlude even though we're just about to enter summer. The trio of Al Goodhart, Al Hoffman, and Mitchell Parrish wrote Winter Interlude. That recording was made February 15, 1934, in Chicago, and released as Victor 24572. I'm Glenn Robison, and you and I are listening to Rapidly Rotating Records. I've only been to Indiana one time, and unfortunately that was for a two-day business meeting held at a hotel near the Indianapolis airport, so I had no opportunity to see or experience anything in the area, not even Terre Haute, only about 75 miles from Indianapolis. Terre Haute is adjacent to the Wabash River, the largest northern tributary of the Ohio River. On April 21, 1927, the Rose Polytechnic Institute was licensed to operate a broadcast transmitter in Terre Haute, and the call letters WRPI for Rose Polytechnic Institute were assigned to the station. Shortly after WRPI went on the air on March 21, 1928, the station was taken over by an organization which was able to have the call letters changed to WBOW. Why? Well, the new owner of the station was the Banks of the Wabash Broadcasting Association. An announcement in the Indianapolis Star on March 28, 1928, said that the new designation was symbolical of the spot made famous by Paul Dresser's song. The call sign WBOWAM was deleted on March 29, 1941, but WBOWFM went on the air on September 1, 2003, as Light Rock 102.7. But it's still on the banks of the Wabash, and here's Paul Dresser's song. From my Indiana homestead waves the call. In the distance loom the woodlands clear and cool. Oftentimes my thoughts revert to scenes of childhood. Where I first received my lessons, nature's school. But one thing there is missing in the picture. Without a face it seems so incomplete. I long to see 
my mother in the doorway. As she stood there years ago, her boy to greet. Oh, the moonlight's fair tonight along the Wabash. From the fields there comes a breath of human The American Singers from Edison Diamond Disc 52636, July 20th, 1929, with Paul Dressers on the banks of the Wabash far away. The American Singers sound a bit like the Shannon Quartet, don't you agree? Perhaps not surprising since Charles Harrison, who sang with the Shannon Quartet and the Revelers on occasion, formed the American Singers Quartet around 1927. The other original members were tenor Redfern Hollinshead, baritone Vernon Archibald, and bass Frank Croxton. Lambert Murphy later replaced Holland's head. The group made four diamond discs in 1929, and their single Victor session was on March 13, 1930, during which they recorded On the Banks of the Wabash again, but by this time Walter Preston had replaced Archibald. Radio station KSCJAM is located in Sioux City, Iowa. It's currently billed as Talk Radio 1360, owned by Powell Broadcasting, but when it first went on the air on April 4, 1927, it was owned by the city's newspaper, the Sioux City Journal, hence KSCJ. The Sioux City Journal was founded as a weekly newspaper on August 20, 1864, by Samuel Tate Davis, 
and others in the Unionist Party who wanted to see Abraham Lincoln re-elected, and it's still being published daily today. Now, when I was trying to figure out what record to play to go along with Sioux City, naturally, Sioux City Sioux came to mind. But I thought, no, that's just what they'll be expecting. So, here's the Iowa Corn Song. the naughty word, you mustn't say the naughty word. Hail, hail, the gang's all here. You mustn't say the naughty word now. Hail, hail, the gang's Yes, that was the official band of the American Legion Monaghan Post of Sioux City, Iowa, directed by James Mellicar. The vocalist was Ernest Lower, who was also the group's drum major. You might think that was a private recording just for American Legion members or available only at American Legion posts, but that was a regular 10-inch commercial 78 recorded October 15, 1926, in the former Trinity Church in Camden, New Jersey, and issued as Victor 20269. On the flip side, Carl Albert Herman Tyka's March, The Conqueror. The Monaghan Post Band was formed in or before 1922 because they won first prize out of over 100 bands at the American Legion Convention in New Orleans that year. Ernest Lower was the vocalist there as well. Radio stations change ownership and call signs with surprising frequency. Unlike KSCJ, which has had the same call signs since 1927, KEEL Shreveport, Louisiana, has not. 
Shreveport is located on the Red River, which may be why the current owners of KEEL AM 710 requested that particular call sign. Get it? River? Boat? Keel? But the station started out in 1922 as WDAN, and later that same year it became WGAQ. In 1925, the call letters were changed to KWKH, which lasted only a year, before a new owner got them changed to KSBA. Why? Well, because the new owner was the Shreveport Broadcasters Association. The Shreveport Broadcasters Association existed until at least 1980, but I could find out nothing whatsoever about it. The station went through two more call sign changes before KEEL. I may not have any information about the Shreveport Broadcasters Association, but it does give me the opportunity to play a couple of rapidly rotating records about Shreveport. Thank you. 
started that Shreveport segment with Uriel Wilfred Montgomery, better known as Little Brother, and a piano solo of his composition, Shreveport Farewell. That was recorded October 16, 1936, but not released until December of 1940 on Bluebird B-10953. Little Brother Montgomery was born April 18, 1906, and will be getting his own birthday segment next year. We finished up with Oscar Woods and Ed Schaefer with Fence Breakin' Blues, recorded May 21, 1930 in Memphis, Tennessee, and issued on Victor 23275 and Bluebird B-5341. Ed Schaefer played guitar, kazoo, and sang with Oscar Woods on guitar. So why did I play that in a Shreveport segment? Well, because Fence Breakin' Blues is one of only two sides the duo made as the Shreveport Homewreckers. The title on the other side? Homewreckin' Blues. Alfred Baxter was born in November 1853 in Manchester, England, and came to America in 1862 at age nine. In 1876, he founded the Baxter Laundry Company, operating in the basement of Gardiner and Baxter, a haberdashery in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Alfred's son, Howard Baxter, was born in Grand Rapids in 1886 and earned an electrical engineering degree from the University of Michigan in 1909. He put that knowledge to work with the New York Telephone Company for two years before quitting in 1912 to return to Grand Rapids as manager of the Grand Rapids, Muskegon, and Kalamazoo branches of Baxter Laundries Company. By 1920, the company employed 229 people, and in 1928, it was the largest corporation of its type in the world, with 30 cleaning plants in 17 states. In addition to running the family laundry business, Howard had many varied interests. He held local and state elective offices, was an active Rotarian, and an avid sailor. And by avid sailor, I mean he was a member of several yacht clubs and commodore of two, and was called skipper by his friends and family, and was hard sailing well into his 80s. But apparently he didn't have enough toys, 
as in 1926, he bought radio station WBDC Grand Rapids at 1170 on the AM dial. Baxter immediately had the call letters changed to, remember he owned a laundry company, that's right, W-A-S-H. <laughs> He apparently got tired of playing radio and sold the station in 1929, and the WASH-AM license was dropped in 1942. WASH-FM is a current broadcast station, but it has nothing to do with laundry. WASH now refers to Washington, D.C., where the station is located. Baxter launderers and cleaners would wash your clothes and towels and rugs, but I don't think they'd wash your elephant. You'd have to do that for yourself. You wanted a nice, clean job, didn't you? Oh, stop that. If you'd have kept your mouth shut, we'd have had a good job in the Eagle Laundry. Oh, sure. You know I never had no experience washing eagles. You know that. What you kicking about? The machinery do all the heavy work. 
Yeah, I know. All I got to do is lift the basket off the wagon, sort the clothes, put them in the boiler, lift the boiler up to the stove, empty the boiler, rinse them, turn the ringer, and the machinery, it do the rest. Now, boy, what house did this big piece of lace go to? What lace? Well, what are you talking about? Right there, that big piece of lace. Oh, sure. That ain't lace. No? No, no. That was a sheet, that was. That go to that big brown house where that dog barks so much. Oh, that dog won't hurt you. He wag his tail. Yeah, but while he do that tail wagging business, he also bark. And I don't know which end to believe I don't. Oh, you was just a plain fool, that's all. What'd you say? Didn't you hear me? Boy, if I had, I'd have smacked you right in the mouth. You know, you ain't overcrowded with no brain cells yourself. Didn't that man in the laundry with the big black mustache tell me you was doing twice as much work as me? I explained to him that you was foolish that way. I couldn't learn you no better. You was so dumb. Don't you know who he was? Well, how would I know him? Uh, he's the boss of this laundry, that's who. The boss? Uh-huh. Doggone. I wonder if he knew I was only joking. I wonder that. Yeah, dumbhead. You ain't using that cranium for nothing but to hang your hat on. Cranium? Uh-huh. You mean them red craniums? Them flowers and posies and like that? What are you talking about, anyhow? Never mind, Dad. Look where you're driving. Don't you see that sign what say one-way street? Well, I'm only going one way. Yeah, a cop come along and give you a ticket, though. Boy, it's getting nowadays so you can't tell whether the policeman is going to give you a ticket or sell you one. Or drive on, fool. What did keep you so long in that last house we stopped at? How come? The maid had to find the woman's whereabouts. Oh, I put them in the basket myself. Put what in the basket? Them whereabout things. Oh, stop talking and look at that paper and see whereabouts we stops next. Oh, you know I can't read that paper, you know that. I thought you told me you got reading glasses yesterday. Well, the man, he must make a mistake. Because I put them on and still I can't read. You know what you need, spelling. Boy, it's getting so dark I can hardly see this paper. We better stop somewhere and get some of that red oil. Red oil? What are you talking about, red oil? Well, don't you know that our taillight is empty? Don't you know that? Oh. Yeah, boy, drive for a while, will you? I'm getting so fatigued, I hear. How come you was always so tired? <sighs> I don't know. It's sort of run in the family. Oh, you mean it's hereditary? No, no, no. It run in the family. You know, my father, he only weighed three pounds when he was born. Three pounds? Well, did he live? Oh, I don't remember. That was way back before my time. Don't bother me. You heard them a couple of years ago in their routine Pullman Porters, but there were Phil Cook and Vic Fleming as the two dark knights on a laundry wagon doing their best to emulate the two black crows, Charles Mack and George Moran, whom you heard on last week's show. I'd give them a solid B, maybe a B plus. The pair made ten sides like this one for Edison in three sessions in late 1927, early 1928. 
On a Laundry Wagon was recorded February 11, 1928, issued as Diamond Disc 18229. Before that, a nice stock arrangement and recording of Go Wash an Elephant if you want to do something big. It was credited on the label of Romeo 383 to Gene Morgan and his Lowe's State Theater Orchestra. There was an actual band by that name, but they didn't record. Gene Morgan was a pseudonym used by Sam Lannon and Lou Gold on Romeo, but I couldn't find a listing for this particular record. Oh, oh, Rich? Go Wash an Elephant was composed by J. Russell Robinson with the lyrics by Arthur Turker. I'm Glenn Robison, and the show is Rapidly Rotating Records. This is a special radio station call letter edition of Rapidly Rotating Records. Sometime between July 1st, 1926 and June 30th, 1927, radio station WBBC went on the air. No, not the British Broadcasting Corporation. WBBC was located on Court Street in Brooklyn, and the BBC stood for Brooklyn Broadcasting Corporation. It was one of a large number of Brooklyn radio stations all vying for limited frequencies, which led to a chaotic array of frequently violated timeshare agreements. For example, on Sunday mornings, WBBC was on the air from 9 to 10.30, was back from 6 to 7 p.m., and was heard again from 9 to 10 p.m. During the week, WBBC got morning hours on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays from 9 to 11.30, and its afternoon and evening hours alternated every other day. Most of the stations were well under 500 watts, and their programming was targeted to their local ethnic communities, Greeks, Italians, Irish, Germans, and Jews. In May of 1928, Peter C. Teston, president and owner of Brooklyn Broadcasting Corporation, announced that the company had purchased a 100-by-180-foot lot at the corner of East 70th Street and Avenue X to be the site of a new combination studio and broadcasting plant, complete with two 125-foot towers. A few years later, another new studio officially opened with a broadcast at 9 p.m. on Wednesday, May 24, 1933, featuring an elaborate program including violinist Phil Fabello's orchestra. Fabello was known as the little maestro with the big personality, but unfortunately, I don't think he made any records. Anyway, WBBC soon got in a legal fight with the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper and broadcasters of Brooklyn, Inc., owners of WARD, WLTH, and WVFW, resulting in a 1937 lawsuit, the transcript of which is 619 pages long. It contains logs listing WBBC programs, including the Scandinavian Hour, Italian People's Theater, the German Housewife's Hour, Killeran's Pride of Erin Orchestra, Menasha Skulnik, and Jewish Musicale. And that's all in just one morning. WBBC AM no longer exists, but it was born and bred in Brooklyn.
I've played it before by the Troubadours, but there you have George M. Cohans, born and bred in Brooklyn, over the bridge, performed by Bob Herring's Velvet Tone Orchestra from Cameo 377, recorded June 26, 1923, about a month after the Troubadours' version. That's from Cohans' song and dance show The Rise of Rosie O'Reilly, which opened at the Liberty Theater on Christmas Day, 1923, and ran for 87 performances. KVOS was Bellingham, Washington's first radio station in 1927, with the studio located on the mezzanine of the Hotel Henry at State and Holly Streets. It was owned and run by Lou Kessler, who referred to it as the Mount Baker Station. But Kessler, described as a jovial Jew, was much better at cracking good-natured ethnic jokes than running a difficult business, and the station soon went broke. It was run by creditors until it was bought by Harry Spence and Lafayette Rogan Jones. The call letters KVOS stood for Kessler's Voice of Seattle. Why? Well, Lou Kessler originally started the 50-watt station in 1926 from his Rosita Villa apartment house on the western slope of Seattle's Queen Anne Hill. It didn't do well, so he decided to move it to Bellingham, where there was less competition. Rogan Jones went on to become a pioneer in radio automation, not necessarily a good thing, and was responsible for the Supreme Court ruling granting access by radio stations across the country to news stories by the Associated Press and United Press International. Jones also started Bellingham's first TV station, KVOS, in 1953. KVOS-AM became KGMI in 1962, which stood for Good Music Incorporated, by the way. But here, for Kessler's Voice of Seattle, are a couple of rapidly rotating records having to do with Seattle.
Breezin' Along with the Breeze, composed by Seymour Simons and Richard A. Whiting. There are words which were written by Haven Gillespie. So why play that in a segment about Seattle? Well, Breezin' Along with the Breeze was performed there by the Seattle Harmony Kings. They were in the Victor Studios on July 26, 1926 and gave it a try, but those three takes were rejected and destroyed. The group came back almost a month later on August 2nd and got it right on Take 6, issued on Victor 20142. Speaking of Washington State, KPCB, Seattle, was another station in the Evergreen State. Back in the late 1800s, regional baking companies merged to form large conglomerates, often referred to as cracker trusts. The largest of these was the National Biscuit Company, made up of 114 baking companies. It was incorporated in New Jersey in February of 1898 and later renamed Nabisco. A year after National Biscuit Company was formed, a group of seven baking companies on the West Coast banded together to try to compete. One of those seven companies was the Seattle Cracker and Candy Company, headed by Moritz Thompson. Radio station KPCB was founded by Moritz Thompson and went on the air April 17, 1927 with 100 watts of power at 650 kilohertz. So, why the call letters PCB? Well, the conglomerate of the seven West Coast baking companies was the Pacific Coast Biscuit Company, or PCB. Well, what do you know about that? Nabisco purchased Pacific Coast Biscuit in 1930, and in 1935, Saul Haas bought KPCB and changed the call letters to KIRO, or Cairo. Fun fact, remember newscaster Chet Huntley, who, along with David Brinkley, co-anchored the Huntley-Brinkley report on NBC? Well, when Chet Huntley was a senior at the University of Washington, he got a job at KPCB as a writer, announcer, and salesman for a whopping $10 a month. That's a bit shy of the estimated 200 grand a year he made at NBC. So to commemorate KPCB and the Pacific Ghost Biscuit Company, here's a set of rapidly rotating records about, yep, biscuits. David, don't put no more begging powder and your bread, you see. Call your biscuits is plenty tall enough for me. If I don't want no more sugar And your jelly roll you'll see Cause your jelly roll is plenty sweet enough for me Some men like lunch meat And some they like sultan Some men don't care for biscuits They like the doggone big fat bun But baby don't put no more begging powders And your bread you see Cause your two biscuits plenty big enough for me
I don't want no more begging paddles and your bread, you see. Cause your biscuits is plenty tall enough for me. Baby, don't put no more sugar and your jelly roll, you see. Cause your jelly roll is plenty sweet enough for me. Says some men, you know they're straight. Some crickets are ballast snakes. Some men don't like bung and biscuits like the doggone flat back cake. But baby, don't put no more begging powders and your bread, you see. Cause your biscuits is plenty tall enough for me. Dr. Humphrey Bate and his Possum Hunters in Atlanta, Georgia, March 3, 1928, posing the musical question, How Many Biscuits Can You Eat? from Brunswick 232. Humphrey Bate played harmonica and was the vocalist. 
Oscar Albright played string bass, Walter Ligger banjo, and Stanley Watson guitar. Humphrey Bate was born in Castalian Springs, Tennessee, on May 25, 1875, to a prominent Middle Tennessee family. As a teenager, he played harmonica on steamboats traveling up and down the Cumberland River for tips. He formed his first band around 1900 and played around the Nashville area, and around 1925 began playing on various Nashville radio stations, including on WSM's Grand Ole Opry. Unlike a lot of musicians called Doctor or Doc, Humphrey Bate was a genuine physician and surgeon with a medical degree from Vanderbilt University. He served as a surgeon in the Spanish-American War in 1898 and was a practicing physician for most of his life, which ended June 12, 1936. Before How Many Biscuits Can You Eat, Bo Carter accompanied himself on guitar on Your Biscuits Are Big Enough For Me. That's from Bluebird B-8159, recorded October 15, 1936, in New Orleans, Louisiana. And remember, sometimes a biscuit is just a biscuit. I'm Glenn Robison, and I'm very happy you chose to spend this past hour with me listening to Rapidly Rotating Records. A little more talk than normal. Okay, a lot more. But I hope you found the information as interesting as I did. I'll be back next week with more 78 RPM records from the 1920s and 30s, and music to which you can't not tap your toes, and hope you'll tune in or click in again. And as always, I thank you for your very kind attention.